welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the issues emerging in the US from the Trump withdrawal to the narratives in Fox News in relation to climate change. And we speak to Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England. Thanks for being here. So here we are back again. Christiana, you survived your trip to Antarctica. Well, yes, but... You didn't just go, actually, did you? Exactly. (laughs) I was going to say, we also survived the patience uh, to wait for the um, podcast because I do have to apologize to Clay that uh, when we were on the boat, A, we had very uh, primitive equipment and we had absolutely no practice at this. And I'm afraid that I sent Clay 23 different files uh, that he had to stick together in some coherent fashion. So with with uh, many apologize to Clay, but I think Clay, thank you very much. I think you did a brilliant job for it to sound as though we had actually recorded the whole thing in one fell swoop. And I think it was quite fun just to hear those sounds from way down under the white it was, continent. It was amazing. Anyone who didn't listen to it, last week's episode was a sonic journey to Antarctica, uh, presented, I have to say, extremely ably by Clay Carnell, whose services we will be engaging again very very soon. <laughs> and the penguins that, t- uh, that sound like donkeys, which you're not expecting. <laughs> right. So this week, uh, given that we've been out in a way for two weeks, because last week was the Antarctica episode, there's been a lot going on. Um, plenty of reasons for both outrage and optimism. And later on, we'll be speaking with Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, who I think has been uh, actually an inspiration for us and for many others on climate, which I'm not sure there's too many central bank governors that can claim that. More and more actually following his lead well that's a good point um but anyway before we do uh let's dig into it how are you guys doing you feeling outraged you feeling optimistic mr dickinson uh i feel a little bit outraged because i've made it my business for uh about 15 years now to watch fox news regularly Um, you're joking no i'm absolutely serious um (laughs) i'm not necessarily um a huge uh, fan of all the opinions on Fox News. But I do think it's important to understand how a very dominant, I believe the most dominant news network in the United States presents issues, particularly climate change. Very wise of you, Paul. Yeah, tell us. Very wise. Kudos to you. What have you learned? Well, uh, the California uh, wildfires are the results of climate warriors. Uh, And here's why. Because (laughs) the... um, idiotic climate warriors have forced the California um, electric utility to spend billions of dollars, wasting billions of dollars on renewable energy, so they haven't spent the money to to repair uh, their power lines, oh and this has caused God. wildfires. And there's a long editorial to that effect. Um, and I'm outraged that when our planet itself is being threatened by climate change... Um, a major news network would be so unbelievably irresponsible as to try and fool the public that renewable energy had some role in causing those terrible fires. I'm sorry to say, but I think Rupert Murdoch should be unbelievably ashamed of himself. It's Lachlan now. Well, sorry, forgive me, that whichever member of the Murdoch family it is... um, Fox News just must not make these kind of misleading statements about climate change to the public because I think, you know, over the decades ahead, the people responsible for making those kind of statements will will deeply regret uh, being so misleading. It really upset me. 
It's interesting, isn't it? And to me, what it makes me think is that, you know, there are there is a school of thought in climate change that once the disasters get big enough, then that will naturally lead to the sort of emergence of rationality in response to them. But actually, what you've just said makes me think is there is there is no such straight line at all, right? In fact, the line can get even more curvy. There's no way we can wait for the disasters to get so big that people will begin to respond to them in a positive way. They will just warp the truth in bigger and bigger ways. There has to be a different route to solving this. Christiana's shaking her head. Yeah, unless people come out and stop this somehow. Paul, did Fox News cover the fires in Australia with a similar interpretation? Or the floods in Venice? It is, there is no link made uh, when watching extreme weather on Fox News to climate change, except when I think they feel they need, a commentator feels they need to, uh, make a statement like the one that, that outraged me. Generally, when things are reported, they are not linked to uh, climate change, anthropogenic climate change, not at all. It's just really, as you say, it's, it is outrageous because um, if I remember correctly, we found out way back in 2015 that um, the public's quote-unquote figures that are most trusted are actually weather people. Mm. Um, and at, back then, many of them took on the responsibility to continue to making the link, which is not easy to make because climate change is not directly responsible for causing these things. It's an accelerator, right? Um, and so it's, it's, it is, uh, it does have one wrinkle of nuance. And for people who can't deal with nuances, who need everything in black or white, then it's very difficult for them to understand this. But the fact that here we are in 2019 and these, these extreme events, whether it's Venice completely underwater, unprecedented levels of water, or whether it is Australia with unprecedented fires that almost reached Sydney, um, and, and that no no link is made to to climate as the accelerator. That is absolutely outrageous. You know, you know when the uh, the uh, Australian Prime Minister was asked about climate change, you know, he said this is just not the time to talk about that. Yeah, I agree with you, Paul. A hundred percent is outrageous. Okay, so we need some optimism, Tom. All right. My source of optimism is that the US has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. (laughs) Right. So hear me out. Obviously, in a larger sense, the US withdrawing from the Paris Agreement is not good news. Uh, But we've seen this coming and the disaster happened four years ago, right, when Trump got elected. And this has just been a run of misinformation and lies ever since then. But the reason why I say I am optimistic about it is the degree of mobilization that has happened in the wake of that pullout. And the numbers are just amazing, right? I mean, 70% of US GDP is still covered by firm commitments to actually meet or exceed the objectives in the Paris Agreement. That is 65% of the US population and over half the greenhouse gas emissions are still covered. So, I mean, I'm not in a way... I would be delighted if we had an enlightened president who understood the importance of this. But what is amazing, and I think it speaks to the need now for broad coalitions that goes beyond national governments into all kinds of other stakeholders. The optimistic side is that what we're seeing is that government can no longer stop this. Even if the government is giving the most sceptical, negative message towards climate change, the society still moves forward. And the temporary absence of 
leadership in the US is not going to stop this moving further forward. Now, the, the, the downside, the exclusion from my optimism is what this may do or the license this may give to other international leaders to actually begin to dial down their own ambitions. Christiana, do you think that that is likely to happen? Well, we haven't seen it yet because of that, right? Right. Um, but but let me just start with um, n- neither outrage or optimistic. If I can use for for an ex- as an exception a different adjective, I'm downright amused. <laughs> I am just so amused um, because first of all, I I remember when uh, Mr. Trump first announced this when he was newly elected, and I was on travel and I was sitting in my hotel room and we all knew that he was going to announce. And I sat in front of the TV with a little piece of paper and a pen. And I said, right, every time he says something that is factually correct, I'm going to write it down. And I finished the speech with a completely blank document, <laughs> right? Blank page in front of me. Because he said nothing accurate. Every single thing that he said was incorrect, factually incorrect, just lie after lie after lie. Or maybe just misinformation, whichever. I don't know if he knew that he was saying something uh, incorrect or not. But in any event, not one sentence was correct. Factually true. Um, and so I was first very angry. And then I was just amused. I thought how, you know, it's really sad how the U.S. leadership has just lost all, uh, all credibility, all leadership because of this kind of behavior. And I'm just continue to be amused that he thinks that uh, with these things like pulling out of uh, out of Paris, that he is going to resuscitate the coal industry out of the ashes when the coal industry themselves, the CEOs told him, there's no way that we can bring coal jobs back. Forget about climate. It has nothing to do with climate. It's basically because whatever coal industry is left has been completely automated. So right. we can't really bring any any uh, jobs back. And furthermore, coal has been rendered completely uncompetitive by gas. Mm. Um, and so, the, you know, he just continues to say that now he has so many more jobs in coal, tra-la-la, tra-la-la. It's just really pathetic and it's amusing because you have to take it with a sense of humor because otherwise your liver really explodes. You have to. And, you, and it also stops you from realizing that it from thinking that it's normal right it makes you realize that this is not a normal state of affairs actually in most other cases we would at least have some kind of coherent policy from the u.s even if we disagree with it whereas at the moment it's just insane insane well and but not an accident remember i mean there are commercial interests that want it to be that stupid one one addition and i know you're not currently meaning this when you say amused is um you know, there's a real dark side to what he promised as well. And I saw this last year. I went to West Virginia with a group of leaders to meet people who had, you know, to a county that had voted overwhelmingly for Trump, that was highly reliant on coal. And what kind of killed me was the fact that they bought his narrative, right? They kind of bought into the hope. They were like, it's all coming back. The price is coming back. It's going to be like the good old days, etc." And it was kind of heartbreaking, actually, because you realize that they've been used politically for his ends and he has never met their need. Um, and he can't. And he can't, right, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I don't know whether he knows that or not, but that is, a, that is an amazing betrayal, that he's even betrayed those vulnerable people who thought he was helping them. Christiana, you're our last chance for optimism. <laughs> <laughs> you know the 
the the other bit of amusement, I must say, <laughs> is that um, it, it does seem like someone in the White House finally did read the Paris Agreement. Uh, it took them a couple of years to read it because when they first announced it, they said they were immediately withdrawing. And I think in the meantime, someone has read it and realized they couldn't start the withdrawal process until the 4th of November of 2019, which is when they announced that they were starting. And they cannot really exit until the 4th of November of 2020, which for my amusement, is uh, one day after the election. And that was, I remember so, that was John Kerry's specific inclusion, was it not, in Paris? No, 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 because it's, no, because the date is not provided in the Paris Agreement. No, I mean, it's from the date in which it was ratified. But that provision of the wait, my memory anyway, is that that was his idea. Oh, of the one year yeah, wait. Yeah, 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 the one year wait, yes, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, it, it provides certainly a certain stability to, you know, right. intended policy. So that's a very good thing. Anyway, the point is that uh, we have no idea uh, what the U.S. elections are going to be in November 2020. Uh, but there is a, either we will have a different president-elect who then would be able to rejoin the Paris Agreement with a signature because they would do it by right. executive order. Um, or we would have the same absence of brain um, that would lead us into truly into really withdrawing. Um, and, and, and there I do actually have concerns because four more years may have some impact on emissions in the United States. I'm more concerned about the political echoes that it would have to other countries that are finding it admittedly rather difficult. Right. And, and, and to give them political cover um, and an excuse, an easy excuse to not do their homework, that really is concerning to me. Mm. You know, um, Donald Trump allegedly, according to Stephen Colbert, the comedian, is talking to his associates about another series of The Apprentice after uh, he finishes his uh, his term. And uh, the words stick in, in Colbert's gullet and he pulls out his phone and he says, after his term, note to self, live. <laughs> That's how many of us feel, you know. Anyway, so how about a true leader in the world, Governor Mark Carney of the Bank of England? Right, no, you're absolutely right, Paul. So Mark Carney has just been remarkable on this. And my memory is that even in 2015, a few months prior to Paris, he gave a very famous speech to a range of financial leaders. And he talked about the potential jump to distress that financial assets would endure if climate was not dealt with, as in they would suddenly become um, subject to a major change in valuation as a result of climate change. And since then, he's really led the world in trying to get the financial system to really get on top of this, building on much of the work that CDP uh, under your leadership, Paul, has done for many years around disclosure and measurement and um, adding different pieces and taking a different lens, but just using that seat, running a central bank to really elevate this issue far faster and higher and, and, and globally more successfully than anyone has done before. So salute. Let's go talk to Mark Carney. Awesome. Let's go. Mark 
Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us on Outrage and Optimism. And as I had shared with you, the reason why we do this podcast and why we have titled it what we have is because we really frankly believe that that we need both the outrage and the optimism. The outrage has been recently most eloquently expressed on the streets by many young people and in London certainly by many adults on the streets who are outraged the fact that we have known about climate change for such a long time and we have delayed the corresponding action on climate change. But we also very firmly believe that we need optimism. We don't believe that we can fall into despair and paralyze uh, what our minds or our hearts uh, and that we actually need to remain optimistic in the sense that we need to be committed to solving this in a timely fashion. So those are the that's sort of the range um, that we would like to talk to you about. And, and there, Mark, if, uh, if you may, we would love to dive with you into a phrase that you have made really quite famous and that I think is such a compelling phrase, which is, uh, you have warned us already, I believe two years ago, but correct me, please, um, about how we need to avoid the jump to distress on climate change. So first, I just wanted to invite you to share with us what did you mean when you coined that phrase? What did you mean by the jump to distress? Okay, well, thank you, uh, Christiana and Tom, for having me on. Um, And I'd like to take your title and use that to explain this. Um, And if you bear with me for a minute, I'm going to refer to a bit of economic history or a great economic historian. Excellent. A gentleman named Hyman Minsky. And what Minsky did is he he um, understood uh, cycles of optimism that gradually build uh, and based on something that's fundamentally good. And think, for example, of um, financial innovation in the early 2000s in the United States that allowed more people to be able to get mortgages for their homes. So people who otherwise should have been able to get mortgages, but the old system wouldn't allow them to, and some of this innovation allowed them to get mortgages for their homes, and that helped increase home ownership for a period of time. So something that's originally good, but eventually gets applied so broadly that the optimism becomes complacency and then euphoria, and then there is a moment of revelation, a moment where the scales fall from the collective eyes of the financial sector, and that optimism turns to outrage, and you have the subprime crisis um, in the U.S., which leads to the the Great Recession or the not so Great Recession, if you live through it, of two thousand and eight, and the and the global financial crisis. So it's a period where you have that transition, and that's called a Minsky moment or a jump to distress in financial markets. And so let's look at the analogy uh, with climate change. Um, well, we don't have something that's fundamentally good necessarily, as you know very well, but there is a, uh, in many circles, uh, there still is a complacency about the scale of adjustment that's necessary or the degree of preparedness of certain companies or countries or sectors. And the risk that we worry about as financial regulators is that this goes on for too long this complacency, this, I'll call it optimism, misplaced optimism about how ready the system is, financial system, underlying economy is 
to address climate change, to move us to net zero. And then there's that Minsky moment, that moment where optimism turns to outrage. And all of a sudden, a series of financial assets, so equities or stocks or bank loans, that people thought were valuable are revealed to be certainly much less valuable, if not worthless, because they're not ready for the adjustment that's necessary um, uh, in order to achieve, um, in order to stabilize uh, temperatures. And I, I speak, um, I, I'm speaking obviously from the Bank of England, from the UK, uh, where the government has legislated uh, for, the parliament has legislated rather, for net zero by 2050. And what we need to do is to put the financial system in a position so they can make those judgments today. They have the information and the tools to make those judgments today about how ready certain companies, financial institutions, sectors, countries are for that adjustment. So they don't. So the system doesn't suffer this sharp adjustment, this jump to distress, this move from optimism to outrage that will damage. Um, financial stability uh, much more broadly. Well, it seems to me that we are sort of stuck there uh, between a rock and a hard place because we certainly agree with you that there is urgency about this. Uh, Science tells us that uh, very clearly. And at the same time, you have warned us, and I think it is by now common wisdom, that that transition cannot occur precipitously. It has to be something that is planned, that is organized, that is smooth. So it, it from the point of view of, let's say, the fossil fuel industry, uh, it, it's a very difficult situation that they have in which they can't be too far ahead of themselves or of each other because shareholders will punish them. On the other hand, if they delay too much, they will entire they will have a jump to distress and they will lose their entire value of their high carbon assets. So from the point of view of those fossil fuel um, industries and some of them, some leaders in that industry are really very, very sincerely trying to figure out what is this transition all about? How do they do it? How do they keep their shareholders and their customers and their integrity um, as well as their business continuity? How do they, how do they save it all? Um, from a financial point of view, when you see these companies, and particularly the fossil fuel companies, how, how do you see, is, is there any way to figure out that transition that obeys both the urgency but also the smoothness? Yes, uh, yes there is. And I, can, I think we can generalize it from the fossil fuel industry, but I'll, I'll stick to your example, um, which is um, there's a need for information. Um, and that information is not just static. In other words, it's not just information about carbon footprint today, um, so the fuel mix of an energy company uh, today, the energy mix, I should say, uh, but where they're headed, um, so static and strategic. Um, and so what is their transition path of that fossil fuel company or energy company, I, maybe, I might stress? Um, uh, when do they see uh, a transition from if they have coal, from coal to uh, oil, from oil to gas, from gas to renewables, and within the new renewable spectrum, um, how are they investing? Um, how are they? How are senior executives compensated? For example, uh, how is this mm-hmm. governed? Um, uh, consistent with the transition, and so 
all of that information is important for a bank that might be lending to that fossil fuel company or uh, an investor uh, who might be investing your or my or people listening some savings or pension uh, in that fossil fuel company uh, in order to judge, um, is that company, quote, strategically resilient? Um, Are they on a path that's consistent? And this is the important point, consistent with the path that society has chosen, okay? Because in the end, um, there's an interplay between um, the strategy of a company, the information the financial sector needs in order to judge whether that strategy is right, and what society has chosen, what you know, what ultimately expressed through climate policies um, and consumer preferences um, uh, in, in terms of, of what path that society, that country, that geography, this world is, is on. Um, so it, it, it needs that information up front. If, I, if you give me a minute, I'll just make a point about on the optimism side about that information. And I know you know this, Christiana, but one of the things that came out of your work uh, for uh, COP21 in Paris uh, was to get the private sector to come up with rules or standards for how to disclose this information. It's called the TCFD, um, run by Mike Bloomberg. And now we have, as we talk today, $120 trillion of assets of banks and investors and pension funds and insurance companies who now are asking companies from the fossil fuel industry, from other industries, to provide this type of information so that those who provide the capital, and it's ultimately all of our capital, um, you know, people listening and people around the world, it's their capital, um, to, who, who provide that um, capital to make the judgment of who's on the right path, who's thinking about it, who's ignoring the issue, if that's the case, um, and therefore, who should be uh, who should be rewarded and not? And is your sense, Mark, that in general the financial sector is, um, of course, I'm going to put words in your mouth right now, is as aware of this uh, really difficult transition and is playing their part in supporting this? Because it seems to me that the financial sector really has to have their eyes at least a couple of decades ahead and be making decisions today that are going to keep us safe for uh, for the next few decades. So what what is your sense of um, either the financial sector in general, but then also love to know your uh, your opinion and and your hopes and and wishes for the network for greening the financial system mm-hmm. as as being done by your peers and other central banks? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that, and I apologize for using another phrase, but um, you and I have talked about the tragedy of the horizon, which is that, the, in general, the horizon for the financial sector um, is too short for, um, catastrophic, for combating catastrophic climate change. In other words, by the time that the physical effects, and obviously many of them are manifest, but by the time they are widespread and the physical effects of climate mm-hmm. change uh, are manifest, it will be too late to um, arrest them. Okay, so this is about bringing the future to the present, as you as you put it, 
And um, first and foremost, the way that is done is through climate policy. I think we shouldn't forget that, and that's not financial sector policy, but that's whether it's a car- price on pollution, price on carbon, um, uh, you know, regulation, subsidies, other things that are uh, uh, infrastructure spending, other things that are consistent with the transition. So I'll just make that point. Now, that said, um, what has been happening in recent years, in the last few years, is that these issues around bringing the future forward uh, moving to a more sustainable financial system are increasingly center stage. Um, so I, I referenced the $120 trillion of assets. That's a big number for anybody, even the Bank of England. It's twice the size of the global economy. They, they are now looking for this information, first point. Secondly, financial regulators, um, and you referenced the Network for Greening the Financial System. Uh, so that's a group of 47 now. Uh, central banks and regulators that uh, cover jurisdictions that um, those jurisdictions are more than 55% of global emissions. Um, And what we're starting to do is to supervise our institutions, so banks, insurers, others, to see if they are managing these risks. They're asking these questions about who is, we talked a moment ago about who's strategically resilient. And one of the things the Bank of England has just started and others will follow, I'm confident, is we are going to stress test our banks, our major banks, to see if uh, how their loan books, how their assets, how their balance sheets would look if we're on a path to net zero uh, or mm. if we're on a different path that is um, you know, moving towards more catastrophic climate change. The, the important thing about the first is it forces the institution to think about is the company they're lending to, do they have a plan for reducing their carbon footprint? Are they, quote, strategically resilient in five years, 10 years, 15, 20? The horizon over which uh, emissions have to come down. Um, And if not, what does that mean for that bank's strategy going forward? Should they be lending to other people? Should they be developing, pardon me, new lines of businesses? And how do they adjust accordingly? Now, of course, that very dialogue with the company and ultimately with us, starts to bring the future forward and starts the adjustment earlier. But I'll go back to my first point, if I may, which is the financial sector will pull the future forward and it will amplify the effect, provided there continues to be progress on climate policy, right? So policy policy of government. And that's the thing. We can flip this into a virtuous cycle Um, And this is where you really see the power of finance is to bring, because as soon as climate policy is credible, as soon as that, it's not just the legislation for net zero, but it's actions consistent with that, then there's a huge slew of institutions and individuals who sit there and think, well, what's going to happen next? Where's the carbon price going tomorrow? If it's going there, which company is ready for that? Which bank is ready, you know, lending mm-hmm. to that type of company? Where should I put my money? And then that, that encourages the adjustment. So we need the information. We talked about that. That process is underway. Then we need the risk management. And that's what the network for greening the financial s- sector is doing. And, I, and if I can say this again on the optimism side, um, so the Bank of England surveyed all the banks in, in, that we oversee. That's $11 trillion of assets. That's still a huge number. 
Um, and actually one of the things they wanted to see was exactly this type of stress test because they want to develop their expertise in this area. So normally when we ask our institutions to do something or we oversee them or we demand information or analysis, uh, you can understand uh, we're not very popular. Uh, In this case, um, it's exactly what they wanted because the, the financial sector is moving towards these issues. Now, I'm on the record in saying this and I'll won't be totally optimistic because I will acknowledge what you know, which is there's progress, but like virtually everything else in um, uh, in the fight against climate change, uh, it's not moving fast enough. So it's moving in the right direction, but it's not moving fast enough. And uh, Correct. one of the issues is going to be how to how to accelerate this. Mm. Mark, that's. That's very interesting. And I think that, um, you know, the stress test point is particularly interesting. Just to go back to something you said earlier, um, you made the point that the assessment is whether or not these institutions are on a path that's consistent with the path society has chosen. And of course, determining that requires a degree of interpretation, as you know very well from the back and forth around a different issue around Brexit. I mean, society may or may not choose a direction. The implementation of that looks very different over time and it continues to change. And we see the same thing in climate change with the election of leaders who seem to go a different direction or a different speed. So, I mean, how how can financial systems continue to take account? The threat doesn't go away, right, when society takes these bumps or goes in a different direction. How can these financial systems continue to take account of that risk when the transition appears to be so bumpy from a political signalling perspective? Well, it's, um, I mean, that's a, it's a great question, Tom, and it's something that's constantly reevaluated. Um, I will say that whether it's, um, there's a host of areas, I won't belabor them, but um, it's how monetary policy works, it has fiscal policy works, right. if it's, you know, budgets and things work if they're, if they're credible. If they are credible, if you have a track record, you don't, you have to do much less. The market anticipates what you're going to do. It it pulls forward that adjustment. You have to do less of it, and it's absolutely the same way for climate policy. So it's quite. I mean, it's no insight, but it, it bears reinforcing that it's quite counterproductive if it's stop start. You know, two steps forward, one step back type climate policy or or um, or uh, initiatives are changed uh, with with great frequency, and and therefore it's hard to track. The other way, though, that I mean, you know, financial institutions listen to uh, their clients, um, and uh, you know, the question is how transparent is. And this is one of the issues. Uh, sorry, I'm hesitating for a second, but what, it's one of the issues that uh, probably the industry would like to get uh, to be able to report more clearly, which is who uh, whose pension fund is is um, consistent with the path towards net zero or more consistent with that path is being invested in that way. If you're in the U.S., a mutual fund, or if you're here, a, an ISA or a USIT, uh, different words for basically the same thing, uh, which ones are being invested in a way that's more consistent with that? And um, I think there's a challenge to come up with the right answer, the, the way to approach that. It's one of the things we're thinking about. Um, and because... The answer, in a, if, if the entire economy has to transition, and it does in order to get to net zero, 
The answer isn't just in pure green activities. You know, all the investment can't go into renewables, right? And uh, Christiana started this discussion with the case of a fossil fuel company, unnamed fossil fuel company. And some of them are transitioning, as I said, from oil to gas through to renewables. And that is a process that, if they're big, takes you know a number of years. Well, actually, for the transition towards net zero, not ultimately being at net zero, but for the transition towards net zero, that company is exactly the kind of company we would want the system to invest in or individuals to invest in, give them the money today so they can accelerate that transition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need a way to report that information so that if society, individuals, ultimately individuals, want to direct their money um, and overweight their money, to use a financial term, towards that type of adjustment, they can do so. We think there are some ways of doing it. We think it's promising that's, and I'll stop with this, they're, they're some of the most sophisticated investors in the world. Uh, big insurance companies, AXA is one, Allianz is another, the Japan Pension Fund is a third. What they report is the, is the degree uh, potential, or the degree warming of their assets. Uh, for example, those are around three and a half, three point seven 3.7 degrees of warming, which on one level is quite a shocking figure. Um, given we know we you know the objective is sub two degrees and one and a half is a stretch out of Paris, uh, and we know that even that has big implications. On the other hand, it's an honest figure. It's an assessment mm-hmm. of where companies are in the transition across you know the major economies. And in fact, it's a better figure than the market as a whole, because whether it's the IPCC report or the add up of the NDCs. I mean, I'm talking to the experts, but I think we know that uh, we're having this conversation. This is the the second of your O's, second or first, it's one of your O's. We're having this conversation because the system, you know, the, the economy is not yet there at a position to, to transition to the objective. Yes. We can either lament that or get the information out there. Governments decide on our behalf the climate policies and then the financial sector um, can manage towards those, amplify and accelerate when there's credibility. And, and you know, as authorities uh, and the system as a whole, it would be good if people could track where things are so they could direct their own money accordingly. Mark, you, um, you point out uh, quite correctly the critical nature of public policy enacted by governments. And that takes me to uh, the COP26 that will be in Glasgow in the UK. Um, and, uh, and, and wanted to know, as you think about that, it's going to be a very, very critical COP for climate change because, speak about NDCs, this is when governments should be coming around the table to increase their ambition uh, for the next five years at least. Um, and that's not exactly where most of them are headed. Um, and so I just wanted to know, I'm sure you uh, sitting in London, you're already at least mentally with one foot in Glasgow. Um, and what, what is your sense as to what is the best that could be done 
uh, for COP26, um, given that A, it will be in the UK. Uh, I'm sure you will be pulled into that in one way or another. Um, and you are, of, of all of the financial thought leaders, you are probably the one that has really assessed this most deeply. So what, what are your hopes and expectations for, for COP26 next year? Well, that's a, that's a huge question. And I, I think the, uh, to stick with the optimism, um, it's fantastic that it's a joint presidency, the UK and Italy, um, and that, um, and of course, uh, this is a UN process, as, as you know well, so it's everyone, everybody in. Um, uh, it does help a bit, though, that um, Italy will be chair of the G20 the year after and uh, the UK the chair of the G7 uh, the year after. So there's, there's follow-through potential with some of the larger economies that whatever comes out of COP in terms of um, uh, putting things into action more, more immediately. It would be natural, and obviously I can't speak for the, um, for the presidency, um, but it would be natural that the private financial, there would be a private financial component to this, by which I mean, um, or at least I would advocate, would pick up on some of the themes that we've been discussing today, um, which is, you know, we should make sure that the foundations of a sustainable financial system, private financial system are in place. There's obviously a role for public finance, but I'm just going to focus on the private system, which is, uh, and to make it simple, I'll use three R's, reporting, so that disclosure, which companies, what's their carbon footprint today, scope one, two, three, and what's their strategy going forward, and how do they govern that and, and, and compensate management. That's reporting, disclosure, public companies, consistent, across the board, so uh, investors, providers of capital can make decisions. Second are risk management, that type of stress testing, and particularly around banks, but also insurers and other big pools of capital. How resilient is their, how robust are their portfolios? How is there a risk of jump to distress to go back to where we started in their portfolios because they've invested or lent to companies that aren't ready for what society is asking? And then thirdly, to switch to optimism, um, is around returns. And um, uh, there are huge opportunities in this transition. Um, and which of our pension funds, um, mutual funds, insurers, investors, big investors, are they on the trend? Are they seizing the opportunities that come with the transition towards net zero? Can they report it in that way? And can we compare? And there is an opportunity uh, uh, because because of the progress the private sector has made, private financial sector has made in recent years, there's an opportunity to bring together some of those best practices um, and try to establish uh, those standards more broadly for the industry. And uh, it does help. I think it will very much help that uh, it's in the UK and, um, and, uh, and being in Scotland as well with a long tradition of far-sighted, prudent financial management is entirely consistent with, um, <laughs> yeah, with moving from, uh, from outrage to optimism and, uh, and, and sustainability. I love it. Well, super. We were just going to ask you, are you more outraged or optimistic? But I think you've answered the question. I'm more, op I'm, I am more optimistic. I mean, I'll say from the financial sector, there is, there is real momentum. I stand by what I said earlier. It's, you know, it hasn't, it's been moving. It's, it has to accelerate, but there is real momentum. 
which creates the opportunity for it. Uh, I, I think some of the components, some of the big blocks of what's needed is are, are clear and and others, uh, you know, it's a great thing about these processes. Others will come up with better ideas to supplement them. Amen. Amen. Mark Carney, thank you so much. We really appreciate this. Uh, we, we might uh, try to get you back on next year as we're closer to the UK uh, COP. Um, and see where you are by then. But for now, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, and uh, I think our listeners will be very educated. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Christiana. Thank you, Tom. Well, what a what a privilege to speak to Mark, who has been a you know such a such a champion and an ally for so many years in this issue, and really used his office to really remarkable effect um, in this area. What do you guys leave that conversation with, Paul? I mean, he is a great leader because basically he's behaving like an adult amongst children. <laughs> Um, you know, most governments, and I, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but they're just like heavy cigarette smokers. They're smoking all these cigarettes. They say, oh yeah, there's a problem. There's a health risk. And they're basically doing nothing. And they're pretending everyone will do nothing. And they're just behaving like children. And Mark Carney is saying, you know, I'm the governor of the Bank of England. You know, we've been doing some interesting things in global finance for a couple of hundred years. And I will not accept that that governments are that irresponsible. I don't believe governments are going to keep on smoking cigarettes. They're going to do something. And so it's my responsibility to work out what the impacts of that are. And I think it's, it's his not accepting that governments will fail, basically, to tax carbon. His belief that governments are going to act and then requiring the financial infrastructure of the world to meet that reality, it is an act of epic adulthood in in a, in a world of children i love it an adult in a world of children <laughs> um well as as life would have it i um spent today this afternoon with uh, quite a few people in the finance sector internationally and i had the um pleasure of listening to Lord Mervyn King, who was the governor of the Bank of England just before Mark Carney, 2003 to 2013. And I sat there listening to him. To I, I, This is the first time I've ever met him, and I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. But I sat there listening and thinking, oh, my God. Either there has been this change of, it's more than change, this transformation that has come to monetary policy and the UK because of a change of generation, because clearly Mark Carney is younger than he is, or Mark Carney is living up to the signs of the times. But the contrast between the two is just unbelievable. So Lord King stood up there and, uh, and went through an analysis of the financial crisis uh, that started in 2007 and went into 2008 um, and asked to the skies three times, there's no way that we could know, you know, what is the next financial crisis going to be? There's so much uncertainty in the world. We have no idea where the next financial crisis is going to come from. And I thought, well, it's staring you in the face. Right. <laughs> then he went on to say, at some point, you know, in our history, in our financial history, we were in the Great Depression. Now we're in the Great Stagnation. 
And that's where we are right now. And the reason why we are in this great stagnation is because we are failing to reallocate capital to those sectors that can actually have value growth over the long term. And what an inspiring vision. And I'm like, well, <laughs> dude, you know what? I, I mean, it, it was just so un. Believable, so unbelievable that on on the one hand you have something as evident and as threatening to financial stability worldwide, not just in the UK, as climate change, and that this man who was the governor of the Bank of England is completely blind to it, and then you have his successor being the champion of it, right? And it was just such a stark contrast, such a stark contrast, and I thought, well. Thank God Mark Carney is there. Yeah. Indeed, yeah, yeah. indeed. Although just one tiny point, there is a solution to the great stagnation, which is decarbonize the world, and suddenly you have a massive economic boom that lasts three decades. I couldn't resist it. No, but it. that's the point. Yeah. That's the point, Paul, right? And the fact that he doesn't see that, the fact that he doesn't see that unaddressed climate change will cause a much greater financial crisis than what we had in 2008A, and B, that addressing climate change, i.e. decarbonizing the economy, is exactly the impetus that a sluggish economy needs. The fact that he's blind to both of those absolute truths is just appalling. I, th I think you'll both find the solution to this problem is just reallocating capital to sectors that are capable of growth. Yeah, I think so too. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 in a prudent way, but you must be realistic. We must constantly be realistic. Weapons manufacturing, you know, that sort of thing, yeah. Well, I say, I mean, you know, I have a sort of, I mean, it's no great insight in a way, but it just sort of struck me speaking to him. I mean, he is deeply... Uh, experienced and expert in a sector that I dabble in. You know, I've never worked in finance. Um, and it just sort of struck me as the power of having people who play roles that seem ancillary on the surface of it to environmental climate issues. But when they get it, they have a transformative a potential that is well beyond anything that can be done by those who specifically work on this. You know, just his deep insights into where the leverage points are in the financial system, how you access them, where the tools are, where the levers are, how you pull them. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. And it's such a complicated environment. I feel so fortunate that he's played that role. And, and I know he's stepping down in a couple of months. I mean, I really hope that the sort of worldwide global bench of central bank governors has someone else amongst them who's capable of picking up that mantle because it's critical movement he's made it fashionable yeah. now all the central bank governors are following suit and uh, that's just as it should right, be right right okay so it's a, now it's a new generation of which is amazing he's changed the world that could be the the the, the key phrase their new generation it really does appear to be that younger people get it more than older people sorry but it's true cool all right well this has been fun nice to see you guys again we'll see you next week nice to see you too see you next week bye for now bye bye all right another episode in the books Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. You know what they say, it's teamwork that makes the dream work. And that team is Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Kluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Cherlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And another thank you is due to our good friend, Ellie Williams, for recording Mark Carney at the Bank of England. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Global Optimism. And please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Send us an email, podcast at globaloptimism.com. We really enjoy hearing from you. Okay, we'll see you next week. <laughs>